Hello, this is Natalie Wright, Product Manager at Breckenridge, and welcome to the Breckenridge Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Stern, Breckenridge's Director of Municipal Research, and we will be discussing Adam's most recent white paper, Thoughts on Modern Populism in the Municipal Market. So Adam, we've seen populist rhetoric expand in the past year, looking, for example, at the U.S. with the presidential candidates Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, as well as in a number of European countries, such as the Brexit referendum in the U.K. recently. Does this populism concern you at all in terms of the muni market? Well, the short answer is, yeah, it does, um, at least a little bit. You know, populism is is really a form of political risk. And uh, as the financial markets reacted to the Brexit vote, it can definitely have an impact uh, for investors. I think the, the impact in municipals is generally a little bit less, but I do think it's material in some cases. Where it connects is really in willingness risk. So when a credit analyst, folks here at Breckenridge look at a municipal bond, we're always looking at ability to pay and willingness to pay. And uh, as we mentioned a few years ago in a, in a white paper on willingness to pay, uh, in the muni market, willingness uh, to pay is very tied with, together with legal covenants that, a, that an issuer gives you as a bondholder, as well as the, the purpose of the proceeds, what the bonds are financing. So if you have you know, a general obligation pledge to finance a school or a really well-secured dedicated tax pledge uh, to finance uh, uh, roads or bridges, that's generally going to hold up better uh, when populism uh, rises or, or other political risks uh, are on the rise uh, relative to a, a weaker secured uh, credit, maybe a, a lease appropriation bond for, say, convention center or, or a general fund pledge uh, for a hockey rink. Um, we, we actually saw, speaking of a hockey rink, we, we actually saw defaults uh, in uh, Vadness Heights, um, uh, Minnesota, a few years ago on uh, precisely that, lease appropriation bonds uh, issued to finance a sports complex in a hockey arena. And uh, there was a similar default in, in uh, Wenatchee, Washington. And there was a spate of other uh, defaults on these non-essential weekly secured uh, bonds in the year two uh, or three after the Great Recession. And uh, that's where you would be most concerned with populist uh, rhetoric and risk. Well, does the new populist sentiment suggest to you that there will be more bankruptcies or defaults going forward? Well, in the immediate term, uh, probably not. But um, in the next recession, I think the, uh, the populist sentiment that we're seeing now, uh, especially uh, with the rise of uh, Donald Trump's candidacy and uh, Bernie Sanders' run, which is which is now ended, to be the Democratic nominee uh, for president, that does suggest that there's uh, less willingness out there to honor certain commitments, uh, that the, the system is a bit strained and that uh, certain obligations are going to have to be rethought. I think in the case of bonds, in the vast majority of cases, uh, the bonds are going to do fine. But we should sort of recognize that when we're seeing leaders uh, be willing to throw caution to the wind uh, to upend the status quo, whether it means trade agreements or radical changes in tax policy, uh, that is of a kind with leaders asking for a fresh start for their communities. And uh, I think 
that you know chapter nine's gatekeeping function you have to prove that you're insolvent to get in is a good bulwark against you know willy-nilly bankruptcy filings but we should be aware that in some cases where there's maybe a question as to whether an issuer is is solvent or not um, especially in a downturn um, and especially in a place that hasn't had a lot of job growth for maybe decades that we should see an uptick uh, in defaults and a downtick in uh, voters and taxpayers you know, willingness to honor debts. Again, I think this is in a handful of cases in the most distressed situations, but that is something that I anticipate, you know, over over the medium term. Well, that's looking at the local government level. Are we seeing any of these issues at the state level? Uh, yeah, in spots. Uh, in general, uh, the states are pretty healthy. You know, all but a handful of states continue to have double A level ratings from from the agencies uh, or higher. But we we are seeing sort of an uptick in willingness uh, risk. Um, I'm not sure it's directly related to, to populism, but it's plainly willingness risk, um, really in three areas uh, that I can see. One is just sort of disrespect for state fiscal laws. So we're seeing that, for example, in Illinois, a little less so in Pennsylvania, where lawmakers have uh, blown through the fiscal year without getting a budget done. Illinois is claiming this appropriations bill that they put together a couple months ago is a budget, but really it's just authorization to spend money uh, that they haven't balanced with ongoing revenue um, until after the the uh, November elections. Uh, in Pennsylvania's case, uh, Pennsylvania lawmakers went almost a full year uh, without a budget, uh, finally got one done, um, and they, they did do a little better job this year. Um, but this willingness to uh, flout fiscal rules, either outlined in statute or more egregiously outlined in constitution, does show that, again, some of the, the longstanding norms and practices are breaking down, that the sort of established parties and the established political system is not doing quite as good a job at getting uh, to solutions as maybe we would expect, certainly seven, eight years into an economic expansion. Another area we see it is uh, tax aversion. So, uh, for example, in Kansas, uh, there's been income tax cuts that were enacted in 2012. Those continue to be paid for with one-time budget fixes. In, uh, in Alaska, uh, lawmakers uh, have so far uh, balked at restructuring uh, their tax code, which is overly reliant on oil revenue, and we all know what's gone on with oil prices. Um, and then, of course, you've got the pension and retiree health care funding situation. Many issuers continue to shortchange the full amount that they uh, should be contributing for pensions, and that's essentially operating in a structurally imbalanced uh, way. So, so we are seeing uh, some signs of unwillingness to do the things you'd want uh, states to be doing to maintain credit quality, uh, and uh, it's definitely something to monitor. In the piece, it discusses how you actually think that populism has more impact on the federal government's ability to get things done than the state. Why is that? Yeah, well, when you look at the the state-federal relationship, what you find is that the states are a little bit in a a better sweet spot than the federal government to manage uh, getting things done, at least, than the federal government. So as I I just mentioned, you know, most states are in in very good fiscal condition, at least relative to the federal government. Uh, Outside of a few problem issuers, U.S. states, all but six are, are rated AA3, uh, were higher by Moody's, and uh, all but three were rated AA minus or higher by Standard Poor's as of uh, July. Public trust in government numbers uh, much much higher at the state and, and the local level for that matter uh, than uh, with the federal government. 
if, if you look at the states, there's only one state where the public uh, basically has less faith in its, its uh, state government's ability to uh, solve problems, and that is uh, Illinois. And the other 49 are, are uh, in better shape uh, than the federal government. Uh, we all know what Congress's approval rating is. Um, it's been in the ditch uh, for a while. When you look at uh, legislative gridlock numbers, uh, you know, state legislatures um, in 2014, for example, they passed on average about 25% of bills that were proposed. Congress, 4%. Now, the congressional gridlock numbers have gotten slightly better uh, since 2014, but if you look at it over a long period of time, you, you can see sort of uh, the gridlock in action and that the number of bills passed by the U.S. Congress really uh, since the late 40s and 50s, um, has declined fairly steadily. Well, but the past doesn't always predict the future. So what is it that makes you think this trend will continue? I think it's commonly believed that the, the gridlock that we see at the federal level is uh, really part and parcel of um, you know, Democrats versus Republicans and political polarization. But there's actually a growing body of research that, that shows that that polarization you know, stems from us, from you and I and voters and taxpayers. Um, you know, Americans increasingly self-segregate into homogenous neighborhoods. Um, U.S. counties uh, have become more homogenous uh, as measured by voting patterns. Um, American civic engagement has generally declined in, across the country. Uh, Americans belong to fewer association groups, know their neighbors less, socialize less often than they did in the mid-20th century. You've got growing fragmentation of the media landscape, um, so people tend to self-select their media, whether it's MSNBC, Fox News, or just no news at all, just watching SportsCenter, I guess, um, more often than watching anything else. And a number of policy thinkers on both, uh, uh, both sides of the aisle uh, have started arguing that the, the extent of the political polarization suggests that lower levels of governments, like states um, and local governments, may prove uh, better vessels to address modern policy challenges. So this populism that we're seeing is just harder to square uh, at a macro level than a micro level. So one example of that might be, you know, uh, folks on the right side of the aisle may see income inequality and lament that there's a lot of rent-seeking behavior because of the tax code. It's highly progressive and there's there's all these carve-outs and exemptions and um, connected insiders and lobbyists lobby for these exemptions and uh, they're controlling the establishment in Washington and, and redirecting capital to where it shouldn't go. So therefore, we need a flat tax code. And then the other side of the aisle sees the same problem and says, well, to mitigate the inequality, we need higher marginal income tax rates. And so that sounds like maybe there's a compromise there, but it is harder to square um, in practice than reality. And that's really what we've seen for the last uh, 10, 15 years at the federal level. I also think the federal debt itself plays a role here. Um, the, the, the debt is a costly political issue. So um, no one ever likes to vote to increase the debt limit. We saw this a couple of years ago with the debt ceiling crisis. And if it is true that uh, the debt becomes tougher and tougher to authorize, the federal government is going to have a harder time picking and choosing uh, what it wants to finance. And so we may see, I think, more of a devolution of uh, at least domestic spending priorities uh, to the states. All right. Well, thank you so much, Adam. We hope that you in the field have found this informative. And please, for more detail, see Adam's white paper, which is currently posted on our website. Thank you. Have a great day.